welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, June 26th, we're studying Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. In today's text, John sees the 1,000-year reign of Christ, the final defeat of the dragon, and the last judgment of all mankind. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Chris Hull. Pastor Hull serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Brother Hull, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Brother Apple, thank you for having me. It's always fun times, and and even today, I know other people can't see, but I can see you. So this is oh, this is what this is joy. this this this. You know, sometimes they say the season of Trinity is a common era, common season. But when I'm with you, brother, it's there's nothing common about it. <laughs> I appreciate it, Brother Hall. So you have the joy and pleasure of talking to us about Revelation 20 today. Before we look at that chapter, talk to us a little bit about the book as a whole. How do we need to approach this book as Christians? I mean, it's when we read it, it's good to know. I believe it's Colossians 3 1 to 4, I believe it is. Let me go there. Like, I, I have people read this. I learned this a few years ago um, that this is a great passage to read before you get into Revelation. Because when you dive into Revelation, it can be a little daunting. And you can maybe get a little depressed. There's a lot of uh, plagues and bowls and fire and death. But these first four verses of Colossians, I believe, really help give context of who we are as we hear and receive it. And it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So in Christ, we are not this old man. Yes, the old Adam clings to us like a, a rotting corpse, but that's not who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ is the new self, the new man, an eternal being. And as we read through Revelation, we see the the wrath of God. We see these horses coming. We see all these things leading up to chapter 20. It's not a cause of fear, but for us, it's like, hey, the, the times are short. The day is coming when Christ will come on the last day and take us to himself under the new heavens and new earth. So revelation to us is encouragement. Warning, yes, lest we fall, but encouragement for we who are in Christ. So really, it's it's not a scary book or a terrifying book, but a joyful book, a book that, that reminds us who Jesus is, he who is, who was, and who is to come for you. So it's a fantastic, fantastic assurance for you and I, and all Absolutely. of Christ. Absolutely, absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about the context we should understand to look at Revelation 20 today. We're getting close to the end here. 
So talk to us about some context. Well, you've before, I mean, you have the new heavens and new earth coming up after Revelation 20. But what you've had is the, the fall of Babylon in, in chapter 18. Fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen is this uh, place. And then you have rejoicing in heaven in chapter 19. So you've had everything, all the letters and everything, and now this rejoicing leading up. And then you finally get to this reality in chapter 20 of, of the church's tribulation and pressure in this life. So you have the rejoicing. Christ is victorious. The devil's been cast out of paradise and all these things. But now we who are below still, even though we have our mind set on the things above, we struggle. Yeah. All right. So let's take a look at Revelation chapter 20 today. This is the entire chapter. Oh, yeah. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or, the, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's our text for today. That's Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. So, Pastor Hall, maybe we should just start by talking in general. This is where the millennium is found. Mm -hmm. you know, right. Millennialism is a thing. You grew up in Georgia, right? And so oh, yeah. I, I bet you heard your share of, of millennialism. Maybe just kind of give us an overview of some of the errors that are out there and yeah. what we're really supposed to get from this chapter. You have views of the millennium, and traditionally there were four views, and, and some of them have kind of gone away. You have pre-millennialism. You have Post millennialism, yep. You have is it pre or 
post-dispensational millennialism. It's, it's pre-millennial dispensationalism, something yes. to that effect. Yeah. So, and then you have A or A millennialism. Um, when you look at some of these, you you see when they hear this thousand years, this very literal time, and people would like to have a clear timeline of here's where Jesus lets the devil out. Here's the time we're in. Some will be taken up and not have to go through this. Those who are raptured, that first resurrection, those who will be taken from it and not have to go through it. And then after that time of the devil, then there'll be this rain on earth. So that's what you get with majority of the pre and the post-millennialism. Right. They take this as a literal number and they, they look for these signs, um, especially like the Antichrist is a very literal person. Um, they want to find a figure in history to say, here he is. And that's the problem is there's tons of Antichrists, those who are opposed to Christ. I remember when I was growing up, this was in the era of Saddam Hussein. So a bunch of churches in my area said, this is the Antichrist. He's the one. And this is when he had the first Gulf War. So it's like, we're, we're finally getting the Antichrist. He'll die and then ushered in will be this era. But there were Antichrists before that. Back in the 40s, 1940s, Hitler was the Antichrist. Before him, Napoleon was the Antichrist. So they always want to find this one figure to say, now we, we can track it, we can see it. And the ones who really take this seriously are the guys that will give you like a date of the last day. Like, this is when it'll all happen. And then when it passes, they'll go, oh, well, I did the math wrong. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. and that's the tricky part with Revelation, is it is an eschatological book. Some things are literal. Some things are symbolic. And you have to be able to decipher and let the Word of God work on you for what is literal and what is symbolic. Like with the thousand years, how the Lutheran Church takes it, amillennialism, is we are already in the time of Christ. This is the time of the church. He is risen, and now we're in this thousand-year reign of struggle. But thousand years, not a literal thousand year, but more of a specific time of fulfillment. That when the time is fulfilled in God, that is when the time is over. So... But when you have, especially pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, it, it's scare tactics. That's what all preaching is. You need to make sure you're ready for this last day. Are you ready? And I grew up with that. So it was a terrifying thing because you're never really ready. You're always fallen, always failing. So you're never assured of your salvation. So you're scared into believing. And that's really not faith. That's just, I'm afraid of burning. So the preaching that comes from these views, it, it, you don't call it legalism. It's fear tactics, wrath, fire, brimstone. Right. And the when you refer to premillennialism, postmillennialism, the pre and the post have to do with whether or not Christ returns before the millennium happens yeah. or after the millennium yeah. happens. And as you said, there's really a, there's a, a premillennialism that's historic, and then there's a dispensational premillennialism that's much more recent. That one, the dispensational one, is the one that tends to dominate American Christianity, it seems, right. in which 
history is broken up into these dispensations, and that's often the one that is looking for certain signs, what we've referred to as a newspaper exegesis. Mm -hmm. And that's the one where you get left behind that whole right. book series. So yeah. that's that's dispensational premillennialism. But again, the pre, the post has to do with does Christ return before or after? As you said, the, the Church's historic position, and the, the position that, that we hold to as Lutherans, is amillennialism, in which the millennium, that is the current reign of Christ, who is the ascended King, our life is hidden with Him in right now, as you read from Colossians 3, and so we are in this age, at this moment, in which Christ is reigning for this thousand years, this perfect, complete time, until we get to the, the events of, of the end, the last day. And that's not for the sake of us calculating dates, but rather it is for the sake of actually keeping us ready. The Scriptures do teach us to be ready, right. but it is not—that readiness is not found in an ability to compute dates. It's rather found in faith in Christ. Exactly. It's the parable of the, the five wise and five foolish virgins. You have the oil in the lamp. That, that is—you are ready and prepared— not out of fear, but out of joy, knowing the day is coming. So yes. when we look at how we see the millennium is it serves Christ rather than that being the driving force of our theology. Like you, you don't hear Lutherans preach on much because it, it's really not, it's not the foundation. It's not what comforts you. What comforts you is the fact that Christ has claimed you as his own and you are united with him. So he can come back today, he can come back a thousand, two thousand years from now. He's still your Lord who claims you. Right. The the comfort is found, again, to, to go to the Colossians 3 passage that you referenced, the comfort is found in the fact that your life is hidden with Christ. So wherever you see Christ in this text from Revelation 20, that is where you are as well. And that's that is the comfort of this text. But we should we should take great comfort from what we read in this text concerning the millennium and the defeat of the dragon and even the last judgment, those things should be a part of our preaching and should be a part of the comfort of our preaching because we are found in Christ throughout all of these events that are described here. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's the beautiful part is even when the devil is released, Satan is released, he, he comes and he starts causing torment he, he's still under God. He's still submissive. Remember, Luther once said the greatest teacher of theology is the devil, is Satan, because he drives you to the Word, which drives you to prayer. Without Satan, without that <laughs> torment, that, that um, omfectung, all of this, uh, we would not cling to Christ. So even the devil being released and tormenting us, which sounds weird, we should see as gift from, from above. Well, let's talk about some of the details that we do get in this text. So at the beginning, an angel comes down from heaven. He's got in his hand a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And with that, he binds the dragon for a thousand years and throws him into the pit and locks it for this, for this thousand year period. So talk to us what's being described here in the angel binding and locking away the dragon for this thousand years. Well, and that's the thing, is when you look at, yet again, thousand years, he binds Satan, and some some say this angel is Jesus, but I don't know, as, as I, because I just finished teaching on this a, a little bit ago, it could be, 
could There's not. There's a couple of other spots where that happens in Revelation, yeah. where you hear an angel does something, and right. what the angel does or how the angels describe sounds like Jesus. Yeah. And, and we've said it at other points that, well, I I don't know. If it is Jesus good, if it is an angel, then certainly the authority to for the angel to do whatever it is that's being done comes from Jesus. Right. And this binding, Satan, seems very weird to, to us because how we see the devil, at least we've been catechized, is this very dualistic view. God is over here, the devil over here, and they're fighting against each other for you. And no, it's... God has bound the devil and put him in the, the bottomless pit. He has bound him to a certain place. Remember in Job, God bound the devil, gave him parameters, gave him, you can't go past this. And, and that's what's happened here is the devil has been bound. He's, he's been limited. He, he doesn't have free reign to do what he wants. He can do only that which he is allowed to do. And then after the thousand years, he's released. Well, what does it mean to be released? Well, we, we kind of see that now. The, the reality of the devil just having free reign and uh, free reign meaning that his limitations continue. It seems because we keep saying, oh, the time seem to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Well, he keeps being given a little more leash, given a little more so that maybe people will wake up to that and say there, there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. That, that's uh, Bill Shakespeare for you. So, that is Shakespeare. That that's an older reference for you. That's a reference. I, I saw the movie when you I probably came. saw the movie version. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I did in a sixteen oh nine. So <laughs> yep, I tell you. So I think when it comes to the binding of Satan, one of the key texts, and I, I forget exactly where this is in the synoptics. I don't. I think it's Matthew twelve. Jesus compares the devil to a strong man, right? And he says that no one can rob the strong man unless you have a stronger man that comes first and binds him. Right. And then you can plunder the house. And it seems to me that that's a pretty key background text for what we're reading here in Revelation 20. Oh, exactly. And you have that in Luke as well, I believe. Luke has that text. And you, you see this. Christ is the one that, that removes the devil. And what does the devil do when he's been cast out? Well, he goes and finds seven demons, you know, and, and brings them back. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So the rea- I, why this passage is there is to remind God's children that even when you see the work of the devil, the attacks of the evil one, this is still God of that devil, of Satan. He's not some random enemy. God is still working through him. And... I know I wasn't until I was in high school that I finally heard that message. Um, prior to that, it was the, the typical God votes yes, the devil votes no, now you make the deciding decision type thing. That's not good. No. <laughs> That's not good. No. So talk, talk a little bit more about that, because I, I do think that sometimes that, that can be a, a tricky thing or a, a difficult-to-understand thing for Christians, that the Lord is at work through the binding of the devil and even through the releasing of the devil. Yeah. Talk more about that. I think Luther has the the quip that the devil is God's devil. You've probably referenced that already. Yeah. What what does that exactly mean and why is that a comforting thing for Christians rather than a frightening thing?
think I lost you for a second there. Sorry. Could you say that again? Tell us more about why the fact that the devil is God's devil is a comforting thing, not not a frightening thing. Yes. How it's comforting is 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 God's the one sending them with certain things. And it's like when God wrestles with Jacob. He doesn't wrestle with Jacob just to torment him and abuse him. He wrestles with Jacob to wrestle him out of his dependency, right? What did Jacob do his whole life? He ran away from everything. So what does God do? He dislocates his hip so he can't run away anymore. He wrestles with him and, and cripples everything that he clings to. I mean, you, you've you heard, you, you know, grew up in Texas. I grew up in Georgia. We always, around uh, Easter time, Good Friday, you'd get that good old-fashioned gospel song, The Old Rugged Cross, mm-hmm. you know, till my trophies at last I lay down. Well, you don't lay your trophies down. None of us ever do. Remember Nicodemus even said, how can he who is old be born again? How can you change? Well, you can't, and you don't. It's done to you. And when God is doing this to us, it looks like God is our enemy. I mean, Luther would say that. When God works on us at first, it feels like God hates us. He's our enemy. When the law is preached to us, when the devil attacks us, when the world pressures us, uh, when death brings fear, uh, it feels like God is the enemy. But God does this so that he may crucify that which is temporal, that which will not last unto eternity, all those trophies we love. So the devil comes and shows you how weak you are, right? St. Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. So that reality is when the devil does come at you, go, well, you know, robbers don't don't break into shacks. They break into houses filled with things. You are filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with forgiveness and faith by grace alone, and the devil comes and tests that, sharpens it, strengthens it. He, he hardens you. Hardened not in a way like with Pharaoh, but hardens in a way that you continue to desire and delight yourself more and more in the things of God. Because as the devil attacks, we either succumb and fail, or we are weakened and cling ever tighter to Christ alone. Hmm. Now, as you were saying earlier, Pastor Hull, the devil is bound, and there is this time that is mentioned that he will be released for a little while within, I think, especially that dispensational premillennialism we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. That time is sometimes called Satan's little season. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've said already that you know we do see that things are getting worse, and I think that sometimes leads people to wonder, are we in Satan's little season? I'm not sure that that's the question that the text wants us to ask and answer. I do think rather to simply see that we know the reality, Christ has defeated the devil, he's bound him in his death and his resurrection, so that Satan is has no real power, and yet Satan continues to be active in attacking the church and Christians, and we are seeing things get worse. I think simply to recognize that reality rather than to try to pinpoint, well, where exactly am I on the timeline— I think just to recognize the reality and believe that I am with Christ wherever we are in that timeline, that's really the key, even as we should probably expect that it's going to get worse, Satan's attacks are going to draw even more and more deadly as we continue on. Well, and that's the thing when you look at this text, it is not like, okay, it was worse here and and it keeps getting worse, so, I mean, even look at Luther— and, and his time, the Turk is right there in Europe. 
and you have the Pope and all these things. So he's like the time, I think Luther even said it, you know, Jesus will come back at this. I, I, if I recall, I'm trying to remember where I read it. Luther actually wrote on the wall like a date that he thought would be the last year. And it was, you know, he ended up dying before that date. I think it was like 1560 maybe, where he thought this will be the date. This is be, you know, when, when the world as we experience it here will come to an end. Um, and of course that didn't happen. But what we see with this is instead is the reality of the fallenness. And it just sends us closer to Christ. I mean, when you think you're safe, <laughs> well, uh, for instance, when you jump into a pool, like a swimming pool, there's no shark there. Um, hopefully not. I always end up here as a child, you know, it's like a shark in the deep end. Um, you feel safe in a pool. You can swim around and, and splash and do whatever you want. But if you plop yourself out into 10 foot deep water outside of Galveston, which is pretty disgusting water anyways, um, there are sharks there. It's not safe waters. So the Christian life is not swimming in the pool, catching some sun. The Christian life is swimming in the, the deep waters of the ocean where you're constantly hit by waves. And, and there are things out there that can kill you and wouldn't mind feasting on you. And so what this reminds us of is this life is one filled with the, the suffering. That, that's the Christian life. Suffering from a worldly perspective, but for we who are in Christ, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, rejoice and be glad for so they did to the faithful ones who were before you. Yeah, well, and, and suffering that is bound up with Christ, suffering right. that happens in his sight for his sake, that does not end in separation from him, but actually draws you closer to him. Right. That the the devil here is bound. And so the, the shark is not going to, to get you. That's, I mean, there's, there's the comfort that even in the midst of that suffering, we know who the victor is, we know who the conqueror is, and you are with him. You are with Christ the one who is reigning for this time and will on the last day defeat all the enemies and welcome you into that eternal reign. So we're going to keep talking about this reign of Christ more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Chris Hull this morning about Revelation chapter 20. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, June 26th. We're studying Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 15 with Pastor Chris Hull. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. Pastor Hull, prior to the break, we've been talking about the binding of Satan. The Lord Jesus has done that in his death and his resurrection. We are with Christ. We need not fear the enemy. As, John, as John's vision continues here in verse 4, he sees thrones, plural, 
seated on these thrones are those to whom authority to judge is committed. And then he also sees the souls of Christians, those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast in its image. These came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So talk to us about the role of the saints here in this reign of Christ that we've been discussing. Well, and this is the the fun part. It's we share in Christ's rule. When I find it interesting when I talk to Christians who reject the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, basically the authority of Scripture, and the authority, like the rejection that this is God's word is, well, man wrote this. These are man's words about God. And the church is just a group of men who this is their view and agenda. And, and they're, they're claiming God's name in what they say. Like a pastor, he stands in the stead of Christ. Well, I'm not, I'm not coming up with my own opinion on these things. This isn't, uh, the sermon is not Pastor Hall's perspectives on the text. Your pastor is the man sent to you from God who reigns along with Christ. Remember Jesus, like saying to James and John, you will um, suffer what I suffer, but it is not for me to give who will sit on my right hand and at my left. Only my father can give this. And the father has. Because after the resurrection, Jesus breathes on them and says, as the father sent me, even so I am sending you. So the minister goes out, sent by Christ, by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, and he reigns with Christ. And how does Christ reign? All authority in heaven and on earth, he reigns to save. And the church does so still today, along with Christ. We do the work Christ has sent us to do. We don't do it with timidity. We don't do it with, oh, I thinks, or I hopes, or maybes. We speak with authority, with confidence, because Christ is the one who has sent us to do so as a king would, one who reigns. So as the pastor, you don't want a pastor walking into the hospital room and you're staring death in the face and go, well, I hope this is going to happen for you. Or, you know, maybe he, no, he speaks the absolution. He speaks the words of forgiveness. He speaks the words of assurance that death is defeated because Christ is one. Hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things that you see then in this regard when it comes to the the place of the saints in this is you see their vindication, especially in the way that the saints here are described, those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, those who didn't worship the beast and didn't receive its mark. So these these are the the saints who were judged from an earthly perspective by having their heads chopped off, or, or they were judged by receiving a hardship in this life for the sake of not worshiping the beast and not receiving its image. And by giving us the picture here of these saints reigning with Christ, that's another way that the the curtains pulled back and we get to see the heaven re- reality that's hidden right now. But we actually get to see it ahead of time when we share the gospel, when pastors absolve sins, when we live faithfully as Christians, Although the world hates this, this in, is in fact us reigning with Christ right now. And that, I think, gives great courage, confidence to the Christian church and to individual Christians to keep being faithful now, even in the face of these judgments from the worldly perspective, 
because we know that we are actually reigning with Christ. I think there's a sense of vindication for the Christians in this text. Well, and as you keep reading through it, it then says those who have gone through the first resurrection. And what is this, this first resurrection? Well, this is, this is baptism. This is regeneration. We who have been baptized, who are baptized, who are regenerated, refreshed in Christ, uh, we will not suffer the second death. We, we've already died with Christ, and we will live with Him. We will reign with Him. We will rise with Him and live unto eternity with Him. And that reality has started right now. You just can't see it. You, you just you don't recognize it because you still have sin clinging to your flesh. You still have the old Adam. You still have this worldliness. So really, I was talking with a bunch of high schoolers the other day for youth night. We were talking about what's the point of this life? What's your purpose? And, you know, I remember when I was growing up, Michael W. Smith had a song, My Place in This World, you know, looking for a reason, going through the night to find my place in, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, oh, man, then I got that his book for my confirmation, It's Time to Be Bold. And it was like always, what, God, what's my purpose? And then, you know, Purpose Driven Life came out after that. And I'm like, no, your purpose in this life is God's trying to get you to see that you're heavenly, that you're eternal, that you are with Christ. That's the point. Everything's about that. Everything revolves around God reminding you who you are in his son. And everything else falls into place after that. So you are already in Christ unto eternity. It doesn't feel like that. doesn't seem like that. All you see are your failures. But that's what Sunday's about, and that's what every day is about as brothers and sisters in Christ, is reminding each other of that. Yeah, the, the first resurrection, as John describes it here in Revelation 20, goes along with what Jesus says in John chapter 5, mm-hmm. verse 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That is the first resurrection here in Revelation chapter 20, regeneration, the coming to faith, going out of the death of sin into life in Christ. That's the first resurrection. And it's received by Christians. It's not received by the rest of the dead. So I think that's the way to take the first part of verse 5, when it says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That, I think, is talking about non-Christians who don't actually participate in this first resurrection, the resurrection that is faith. They only are raised on the last day, and that's a resurrection for them to eternal condemnation and death. Well, exactly, is those who are not in Christ are dead. Um, Christians aren't dead, we are alive. When Jesus says um, he is the God of the living, it's not just talking about you who are breathing now, but you who have been made alive in Christ. That's who he's the God of. And when we look at those who are dead, they're dead in their trespasses. And it will only be when everything is over that their eyes are open to go, oh no, <laughs> this is what it was about. And it, as it says in like the parable of the sheep and the goats, well, it's a little too late for the goat. Yeah, that's right. Well, so talk then about the second death. We've got the first resurrection in verse 5, and then John repeats that. Blessed are those who share in that first resurrection. He says, over those, the second death has no power. So what's, what's the second death? Well, the second death is his condemnation. It's this e- eternal thing. When 
because even we who have been claimed by Christ in baptism will stop breathing one day. But that death has nothing over us. As we sing in the hymn, Lord, thee I love with all my heart. You know, and in its narrow chamber, keep my body safe in peaceful sleep until thy reappearing, and then from death awaken me. So you look at the reality of the first death. We've already died. We've died with Christ. We live with Christ. The second death is condemnation, and we need not fear that. We need not fear death because death is, the, as uh, Gerhard says it, is now the portal to life immortal for us. But for those who are dead in this world, the second death is, is ending of this and beginning of torment, real yeah. torment. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We, we've seen that elsewhere in the book of Revelation where they, there will be those who seek death, but it actually is no, no respite as they think mm-hmm. it will be because this is the, the condemnation that comes to those who do not trust in Christ. Now, as the text continues... These who receive the first resurrection, over whom the second death has no power, they reign with Christ for the thousand years. And then in verse 7, John sees that when the thousand years are ended, Satan is released from his prison. He comes out, he deceives the nations all over the earth. Gog and Magog are mentioned, and they gather together to make war against the saints and the beloved city. So talk to us about this, this final battle that seems to be described here. Well, it, it's spiritual warfare. It's the reality of Gog, Magog, and Satan. They are, are bringing false doctrine and false belief into the church. And when we hear false doctrine, we like to go, oh, well, that's like, you know, these other denominations that aren't following the Word of God as they should. But when you think about it, what it's like there's a billboard that has a bunch of animals on it, and there's a line where it's like, this is where you stop eating and where it becomes a pet and for most of us i think it's a horse maybe i guess is where it's drawn but when it comes to like false doctrine and practice there's no line it's either true or it's false and you look at churches and what's their emphasis what in what do they delight is it in that word of god the truth of the gospel the forgiveness of sins or is it something else Um, And this includes clergymen, too, pastors. Is it about the Word of God, or is it about control and power? Is it about popularity? Is it about holding on to a tradition or being progressive and getting out there instead of just being faithful to that which has been given? So when we look at the spiritual warfare that Gog and Magog bring, it's not just going to be, oh, that's those churches that have abandoned the Word of God, and they have women's ordination and homosexual ordination and ecumenical fellowship with everybody. That's, that's part of it. But the other part will be we who don't spend our time in the Word of God, we who instead place our, our time and our, our meditation on that which does not last eternally, So, and what I mean by that is even we who are more conservative have to be watchful of this and mindful that, that we don't fall into the pit on the other side. Hmm. There's, there's that warning that was repeated over and over again in the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning that, that we would not fall. Certainly the Lord Jesus is, is concerned about that and warns us against that lest we, we are on the wrong side here at the end I think the the picture that's given is that we see 
the devil leading all of the enemies of the church together, thinking that he's got the church right where he wants the church, uh, thinking that he's got the upper hand. I think it's it's significant that the this is happening on a, a broad plane. When we talked about Armageddon back in chapter 16, mm-hmm. we talked about that, you know, the word har in Hebrew is a mountain, and that's where the Lord wins victories. And the people of Israel often suffered defeats on the plains. And so, it, you know, it looks here mm-hmm. as if the devil and his minions have the people of God right where he wants them. But what does the Lord do? He makes that place into a mountain in the sense that he makes that place where he wins the victory. Fire mm-hmm. comes down from heaven and consumes them. What a, I mean, what a marvelous picture that the church is surrounded by all of her enemies, and it looks like it's sure defeat, and then here comes the help of the Lord, which we should be expecting all along. It's just the way yeah. he's acted throughout history. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, I think it's Zechariah 2 that has the wall of fire around the city. I think it's Zechariah 2. I can't remember. Maybe. Um, you know, because like you have your fortified wall. I, I have my base. I have my protection. I have my fortress of solitude. That's a Superman thing, by the way, even if you're a comic book nerd or a movie person. So um, I, I got that reference. Okay, good. Just making sure. Um, but you, you have that, and we all have that. E- even as a Christian, I made this point the other day in my sermon. I, I said, even if you know the scriptures forwards and backwards, does not mean you are actually under them, led by them. Sometimes you use the scriptures, abuse them. Sometimes use them against your neighbor. Can the scriptures become idolatrous even? Well, yeah, if you're not actually being led by them. They're the guiding principle in your life. So when we look at God taking care of us, he is the one that gives us strength. He is our mighty fortress. He is the one that comes and saves the day. It's not you. You and I don't do it. We are the ones being saved. We're the ones held captive. The devil, it's like he's winning. And then Rohan comes over the hill and, and slaughters everybody. You know? I mean, that's that was the fun Lord part. of the Rings reference right there. Yes, exactly. Yes. Good job. And then that's the thing. But why is that help? Is it because you like to think I'm one of those riders? Well, no, you're one of the dudes in the, in the castle, in, the, in Gondor, almost about to die. That's who you and I are. And Jesus comes and saves the day. And he does it every day for you. I think that's the thing is you need to see every day as Jesus rescuing you. It's not like you're able to go through all the days and then finally Sunday you remember, oh yeah, I forgot he rescues me. That's a good reminder. No, it's every single day he's doing it. Hmm. And that's what gives us joyful assurance to just forgive and love our neighbor and Christ working through you for your neighbor, you're rescuing them. Yeah, and so then the Lord Jesus, having won this victory for his saints, he throws the dragon, the devil, into the lake of fire and sulfur, the beast and the false prophet. They are already there. We heard about that at the end of chapter 19. The enemies of God and the enemies of his church are defeated entirely, completely, forever. And and again, this is a great comfort to the Christian. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because they're, they're cast, they're, they're thrown, they're defeated. And, and that's how you preach on Sunday morning. You don't go, hopefully the devil's done. No, he's finished. He's defeated. Jesus is victorious for you. And I come now with tidings of good joy to tell you that the war is over. Jesus has won it. You may feel like you're losing every battle every single day, but Christ has won the war for you. That's right. That's right. So after this battle takes place in verse 11, John sees a great white throne and the one seated on it 
from him, earth and sky flee away, no place is found for them. And then John sees judgment. He sees the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. One of the features is the books. So books are opened, but then there's also the book of life. Mm-hmm. And it seems that the book of life is the prominent one here. That's where you you need to have your name written, lest what is written in these other books... It seems there seems to be a, a difference or a play on you've got the books on the one hand, but the book of life on the other. Like the books, it almost reminds me of the parable of the sheep and the goats, you know, because when Jesus brings them, he separates the sheep from the goats and then he goes through the list of what you've done. Or like we confess the Athanasian Creed, those who have done good into eternal life, those who have done evil into eternal right. fire. So you see this, the books, but then the book of life is what your name is here. Like I was, one of my members asked me the question, she was asking about the Athanasian Creed and its ending. And she's like, well, is that works righteousness? We're saved by what we do. And I said, well, it depends on what you mean by good. What does it mean that you have done good? Good is that which God says is good. And what does God say is good? It's a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. You don't save yourself, Jesus does it for you. He saves you, he rescues you. And those who have done evil are those who reject that, those who abide in unbelief. So the books are, you could, I mean, there's no record here in, in chapter 20 that says what's the content of those books. Right. So we can assume all we want, but what we can, and it's never safe to do that, what we can say is there are books, things recorded, and then ultimately the book of life, which says, here's your name. <laughs> Right. Well, and I think I think the connection you made to Matthew 25 is helpful because the, it does say about the books, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. But by the end in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what, what makes the difference is whether or not your name is in the book of life. Right. And if your name is in the book of life, then when Christ looks at the books— that's the, again, I think the connection to Matthew 25 is helpful. That's yeah. where you get the scene of the sheep in Matthew 25. So he looks in the books and he says, here are the things that, that you did for me because you did for the least of my brothers. Notice that the sheep don't realize they've been doing those things. Right. Because <laughs> they've been banking on the fact, as they should, that their name's in the book of life. Right. On the other hand, when your name's not in the book of life and you've rejected Christ and you have not received him by faith, then when the books are read, that's the scene from the goats on the left. And, and they notice their surprise, too. Well, Jesus, we thought we were doing everything perfect. We, we thought yeah. we did everything for you. Uh, and he says, no, no, because yeah. your name's not in the book of life. So right. I do think the connection to Matthew 25 is very helpful. I mean, that's when you read Revelation, you have to read these end times passages from, from the synoptics. You have to read them because these are the words of Christ that help you walk through this. And we see the books. That, I mean, we're condemned not we meaning the faithful, but he who is condemned is because he does not trust in Christ, is not in Christ, and therefore everything he does is never for Christ, but always for himself. Um, I, I love having that conversation. It's like some of the people who do the best works aren't even believers. They're not even Christians. It's like, well, I'm not denying they may be some, doing something good for humanity, but they're definitely not doing it from a sacrificial heart with no desire for reciprocation. There's something that comes back to them. And like Jesus says, they have received their reward already. So let the wicked, because oh, where is that? You know, let the wicked continue to be wicked. I think that's coming up in Revelation. 
you know, let the righteous continue to be righteous, let the wicked continue to be wicked or evil continue to be evil. You're not going to fix the wicked. That's not your vocation. Your vocation is to strengthen the faithful and to call out wickedness. So the wicked will continue acting like they're more righteous than we are. Well, okay. We don't believe that because everything we do now by faith in Christ is perfect. Hmm. So with the book of life being so prominent here, and we have seen the book of life mentioned earlier in the book of Revelation, tell us, how do we... How is our name written in the book of life? How is it possible that, that on the last day we'll, we'll hear that our name is written there? Well, you have to write your name in that little red book in the narthex when you visit a church. <laughs> That's what you have to do. That's the book of life right there. You put your address and everything, and boom, it's there. No. <laughs> the, it's so fun with the book of life is Christ. Christ has died on account of all uh, on the cross, John 3, 16, 17. He has done it. And now you receive the benefits of his sacrifice in the means of grace, holy baptism. Your name is written in the book of life. And as we go through this new resurrected life, we have the reminder that our name is written in the book of life. As we are absolved of our sins, we hear the gospel preached. We console each other in our identity as brothers and sisters in Christ. We eat and drink Jesus' body and blood that our sins may be remembered no more. Your name written in the book of life because Jesus wrote it himself the day he claimed you in the waters of holy baptism. So it all goes back to baptism, all goes back to the means of grace that here is your name written. And that's the comfort, sealed in his blood. And there's no erasers in heaven. So it, it, it's not going to get erased. Christ has written it. The devil can't sneak in with whiteout and say, oh, I don't know whose name was there. Um, No. It doesn't exist. So, yeah. thanks yeah, that's, to God. That's right. That's right. The devil can't sneak in with white out because he has already been thrown into the lake of fire. And now even here, we have both death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. Which, again, this reminds me of, is it First Corinthians 15, that mm -hmm. death is the last enemy to be put under right. Christ's feet? And right. so here, here at last, we've got all of the enemies of Christ and his church defeated. We saw the fall of Babylon, the great prostitute. We've seen the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. The dragon, the devil's been thrown in, and now death and Hades. All has been completed. I mean, this is, this is just wonderful news to hear that death itself now has been put under Christ's feet. Well, and the thing is, that drives so much in life, doesn't it? Death. I mean, when, like, I get, like, uh, we just got our van fixed, and I was praying it was nothing major because I don't want to get a new vehicle and have to pay for it. And my wife, my beloved wife, Allison, was looking at vans and all the safety precautions. You know, there's like a million airbags. The seat belts are made with titanium. You know, they give you your own guardian angel, you know, especially <laughs> if you get a Honda. You know, it comes with it, goes before you and after you with the breastplate of St. Patrick on the top of the vehicle. And it's just like, well, why, why do we need this much? Like, well, what, what if something happens? We don't, you know. So you, you look at death, look at the hospitals, look at all this stuff. Death drives everything we do. Um, why do I eat salads? Not because I'm a good person. No one in their right mind would ever eat a salad. Good night. It's like, here's a burger and a steak. Here's, here's stuff a rabbit eats. I'm going to eat that. No, you eat it because your doctor says, if you don't, you're going to die. Um, so, so the reality is, or why people run. 
why would you ever, I mean, I know there's some people and maybe some of your listeners that go for runs because they're, they like that. I, I, I take 10 steps. I go, no, I'll, I'll, God has already said, I'm going to mount up with like Eagle's wings on the last day. I'll (laughs) wait for that. But that's the thing. When we look at death, it drives so much and death is done. It's defeated. It's gone. You have nothing but life. Now life drives you. The reality of you don't have to fear dying. You don't have to, to let it determine everything about you. Um, reminds me of that prayer my parents taught me when I was a little kid. Now I lay me down to sleep. You know, the Metallica prayer. And it just scared me. Like, what if I die tonight? Well, if you do, you get to be with Jesus. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You're not going to die. You're going to be okay. Maybe that should be the, the opening for every divine service. You're not going to die. You're going to be okay. Jesus loves you and he forgives you. And your life is his and his is yours. So mm. it's fun. Christ is risen. He's risen, risen indeed. indeed. Hallelujah, baby. I love That's it. right. That's right. With about it. a minute here, Pastor Hall, help us to wrap things up on Revelation 20. The whole point of Revelation and especially Revelation 20 is Jesus wins. He's victorious. He's the king. Everyone's defeated. Sin, death, world, and the power of the devil are defeated so that he may rescue you and claim you. And you don't have to wait for it to begin. You don't have to wait a thousand years. You don't have to wait uh, 50 years. You don't have to wait five minutes. It's right here, right now for you. You are his and he is yours. His life is yours because he died your death. And your death is done. It's in the past. It's forgotten. It's finished. He has won. You are eternally the father's beloved son or daughter. That's who you are in Christ. That's what's going to drive you every day. The road has been paved by Jesus's blood and it leads unto eternal life. Devil's done. Death is done. World is finished. You are Christ. Thanks be to God for that. Pastor Chris Hull is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Tomball, Texas. He's been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. Pastor Hull, thanks for being our guest today. Brother, thanks for having me. It's always fun times with you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Revelation chapter 20, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.